All right. Are you ready to exchange presents? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a bummer that Eric couldn't be here. But I think, though, you know what? I still think that you're going to really, really like the gift that uh, that I got you. I know he was your name on the Secret Santa uh, list, or yeah. rather that you were his name on the Secret Santa list, but it's okay. I decided to do something bold and get choose the gift for him and buy it and give it to you. So I think it's going to be great. So here's yours. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. And here's yours. Oh, thank you. So you open yours first. You open yours first. Okay. Okay. I'll open mine first. Oh, wait. I think it's a book. I think it's a book. All right. The Masculine Mystique. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought, you know, since you're so big into feminism and all, Uh that um, you needed a wake-up call. That's all. I... This is so misguided, but um, maybe it's the thought that I, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and chalk it up that you know I like to read. And I appreciate your attempt and don't appreciate your blatant misogyny. Hey, why don't you go ahead and open up your present? Thanks. I think you're really going to like this one. Oh, it's a jack in a box. Oh, okay. That's... That's unusual. Maybe it's like a play on like there's a Jack in the Box gift card in there, or I don't know. No, just do the twirl the thingy. Why? Why? Why did you put a xenomorph in a Jack in the Box? Uh, Christmas spirit. This was a terrible idea. It really, really was. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Sarah Ashley. And I am Brian Moriarty. Sarah- Unfortunately, poor Eric could not join us again for this episode. Yeah, he's getting a very, very tight schedule nowadays. So uh, we wish he could be here, but we know he's here in spirit. And uh, we know that he will be back next month, for sure. So it's our first Christmas without him. It's almost like he's gone away for some reason, you know? Uh, yeah. But, you know, he's got a lot on his plate. So, And I think our listeners are pretty familiar with us saying that before. So, um, But these things do happen. But sure. um, we will carry on without him um, and, uh, and just know that he actually really did um, want to participate in this episode. Um, the topic was one that he was pretty excited about. So he's here in spirit, definitely. Yeah, and it was, in fact, his idea. This episode was his idea. So um, mm-hmm. he deserves his credit for that. Um, how you doing, by the way? I'm doing quite well. I'm I'm getting into the Christmas spirit myself. Uh, I mean, listeners also know we don't really record these things, uh, you know, right when, right when they come out. So um, I'm just we're just at the beginning of December, and uh, I'm just starting to get in the spirit of things. Doing a little bit of shopping, wearing my Christmas Star Wars sweater. All, all the usual stuff. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, uh, we, we have our Christmas tree up already, and it's got lots of amazing, nerdy uh, ornaments as well as your traditional ornaments on it. But I'm right now looking, and I can see Batman, Superman, Batman, sorry, Batman and Robin, Superman, Superman, Spider-Man. Um, and that's just in one quadrant of the tree. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And that, uh, Well, there you go. Yeah. Nerdy Christmas trees. 
Yeah, and then I'll be making my uh, my high octane eggnog starting tonight because you have to age it for a while. So I'm looking really looking forward to that. Nice. Well, yeah. Good. Uh, so since we're getting in the holiday spirit, um, you know, we are going to tackle things from a different angle this year. Uh, we wanted to talk about really how Christmas got commercialized as much as it mm-hmm. had. And, you know, we can discuss of whether that's a, or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. Because I think I have a, a different take on it than a lot of Christmas purists have. Um, and we'll just kind of go from there, I think. How does that sound? It works for me. Cool. Um, especially because it's really interesting to talk about um, consumerism around Christmas time. And, and very specifically, I want to mention that we're going to be talking about it in an extremely American context. For sure. Um and and I think it's because you know there's this idea that oh Christmas Christmas has only become commercialized in the past you know couple decades or whatever when not true that's not necessarily true no um really when Christmas became popular in America it it was uh, it was already becoming commercial that's what helped make it so popular because um, you know prior to you know the mid 1800s. Uh, Christmas really wasn't a cherished national holiday. Um, most people just kind of didn't even celebrate it, or it was a, you just went to church, or right. um, well, it was a really small gathering. And if you were a like you know, if you look at old world Puritans, they didn't even celebrate it because the Bible doesn't talk about it. Right. So, and before we get a little bit ahead of ourselves, though, though even though we're going to be focusing pretty heavily on uh, on the American context of the commercialization of Christmas. There is mm-hmm. absolutely some European roots that need to be discussed. Okay. Um, and I also want to give our listeners a, a fair caution. Um, our episode, uh, Very Nerdy Christmas Part 2, covers some of the same material over again. So keep that in mind that you might hear some of this info rehashed but and put into a new context. Um, that being said, I want to talk a little bit about how uh, Christmas has really kind of had this war with itself about keeping it about Christ versus keeping it about gift giving since really the 13th century. Um, and we're, when we're talking about that, we're talking about St. Francis of Assisi more specifically, because as Christmas had been around by that point for almost a thousand years as a mm-hmm. holiday, uh, and they were in the, you know, you were talking about the the later crusades that were taking place there was kind of a, of a little bit of a shift. There was a shift toward emphasis on the gift-giving aspect quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And St. Francis of Assisi was critical of this because he thought Christmas was becoming too much about gift-giving and less about centering on the birth of Christ. And in fact, one of the earliest responses to the early commercialization of Christmas is the nativity scene itself. Um, yeah. And I think I might have mentioned that before on uh, older episodes as well. But it, it bears repeating, and it, in fact, is... The first one was live, by the way. It was, you know, real lambs, real people playing shepherds, and uh, Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and everything. And An it, actual woman giving birth in front of everybody. Yeah, it was really, really <laughs> quite messy. Um, so, uh, but anyway, and in a way, that actually was kind of what sprung forth the whole Christmas pageant, too. You know the whole idea of re- dramatically retelling the birth of Jesus, uh, and I just I think that's an interesting parallel that religion had its early response that far back, um, mm-hmm. 
And the other, th- other thing I do want to mention really quick before we move on into America is that around the same time, actually, in toward Eastern Europe, in Vienna, you start to see the birthplace of December markets, uh, where are now just more referred to as Christmas markets. And these are wildly popular in the Germanic world still today. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in France, too, particularly Alsace-Lorraine, because it's been, you know, it's been Germany at some points, it's been France at some points. And, um, and it's kind of closer to, I guess, the closest thing we have to it in America is kind of what we have in San Jose. It's Christmas in the Park. You know, it's this mm. idea that you have a display of, of there's a nativity, there's other Christmassy elements, wintry elements there. But then there's mm-hmm. also these little kiosks where you can go and buy, you know, stuff. Sure, there's hot drinks. Um, well, there's there tends to be things like uh, like harvest festivals, which they're called harvest festivals because they usually come out right around Thanksgiving. But they're halfway taken over by Christmas stuff because people look for those opportunities to buy like, you know homemade gifts and things like that for their friends or more craft style stuff. So I think that um, lends itself too, especially because a lot of, I know the one in San Jose um, that happens the day after Christmas is straight up Santa everywhere. (laughs) True. And they've got a really nice like place where you can go and see Santa. Plus they also have musical acts from all across the Mm -hmm. Bay Area coming to perform. My concert choir performed there actually when I was in high school. It's kind of cool. Oh, cute. Um, and but yeah, like you have these shops that are there, and unfortunately in America we don't like alcohol as much. I think it may be because we're we're descended from Puritans, but uh, in Europe they it's really a bloody shame. I know it really is, uh, but in Europe they definitely love to have like you know, their apple wine and their which is basically like a it's like an apple, it's not quite an apple cider, but it's it's mm-hmm. kind of like a drier apple cider, almost like a apple beer is for lack of a better word, uh, mm-hmm. mold wine of different kinds, of course. Uh, one called Ire Punch, which mm. uh, I didn't look into the ingredients of it, but I just thought the name was really interesting. And uh, and of course, they've got, you know, the German version of fruitcake from these places called Stolen yep. as well. Um, yep. And just all kinds of fun little things. Um, but And to this day, they do keep up quite a bit of attendance. Um, in fact, uh, in Nuremberg and Dresden, uh, the Christmas markets in those towns draw upwards of two million people. Hmm. Um, and other markets are known to draw up as many, many as 4 million people a year. And they're so big in France that there's actually a website, noel.org, because the French word for these is uh, marché de, de Noël. Um, if you go to noel.org, you would think it's just like, like a generic French Christmas site. No. Mm-hmm. It is uh, a whole site devoted to where you can find the Christmas markets in France. Oh, uh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's highly organized, and I couldn't understand a word of what was on there because, you know. <laughs> Google Translate was not helpful? <laughs> was not transferable at that moment. So, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to add really quickly is that um, the two words you might find if you're traveling in Europe around the holidays uh, is a Christkindmarkt uh, or a, a Weihnachtsmarkt um, as the names for the, uh, for the locations you can find those. Personally... I think Weihnachtsmarkt needs to be used quite more regularly in the United States. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cuz it just sounds intimidating, doesn't it? Yeah, and there's well there's a restaurant that I know of called Nashmarkt in um downtown Campbell. Yeah, which just so. means night market basically. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah and so Weihnachtsmarkt, I mean, I get, it sounds like night market for wine. I could be wrong uh, because I don't really know German all that well, but that's what it looks like. So 
Yeah, I. You know what? I'm gonna go ahead and assume that because I like the concept. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like hey, it's cold. Let's just heat up some wine, get outside, and just like drink it. Right. Exactly. That'll, that'll stave off the winter a little bit more. I'm all about that. Right. Yeah, and you know. As you get slightly to, as you get to the 19th century, as we're talking about, um, the one thing I think we do need to kind of reiterate from past episodes too is the 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 reemergence of Christmas as a national holiday is fairly similar when you compare between uh, England and the United States, um, and it, that could be both because both countries were in the midst of a major industrial revolution, but. It just, I think it bears repeating. And you have to also take into account the German influence because the monarchy had just married a German prince. Prince Albert was of German heritage. So, mm-hmm. and well, then again, Queen Victoria was not exactly entirely all English herself either. She was, her family was, she was the granddaughter of, of one of the Habsburgs. So really what we're talking about is the early 1820s, uh, or sorry, 1840s, right? 1840 is when we start to see kind of the, the inception of mm-hmm. the reemergence of Christmas from a couple centuries of puritanical changeover. Yeah. And, you know, some people are like, eh, Christmas is just kind of a thing. I don't really, you know, why bother? Well, and I mean, and if you look over in America too, around this time, um, you know, like I was saying, a lot of... Um, there were so many different groups in America at this time, and everybody kind of kept Christmas uh, in a slightly different way. Um, and there wasn't really any sort of uniform as to, you know, how Christmas looks the way it does today. I'm sure every family's got their own traditions and everything like that. But, you know, the the idea that everybody's got a tree, everybody exchanges presents, everybody's got ornaments, you know, like that, that kind of cookie-cutter image of Christmas um, wasn't really around in the early 1800s as much. And so, you know, it was kind of kind of different. Like, we we see it very much as like a, um, a family holiday now, a time for gathering. But if you looked at, say, like, Virginia planters, they feasted, they danced, they gambled, they went out hunting, they went out visiting friends. It was not about, you know, the, the hearth and home family concept. Um, as much and that was very different from what say the northerners were doing Um, and you know there were so many different customs going on and and around the mid-century people really were craving something to join everybody together and this I mean obviously this totally ties in with civil war and all of that absolutely uh, you know, people were being exposed to uh, the other side of, of the way people live, um, communication and transportation, the revolutions made within those sectors, you know, the increase of the railroad and all this other stuff. It made these isolated parts of the country become really visible and everybody started to become more aware of each other. And, you know, also immigration, um, you know, kind of also create bringing in new traditions and kind of uh, changing the way people viewed other groups. Um, and there were huge tensions that were growing. And um, basically, people were trying to reconsider the idea of community on a national scale, as opposed to just a local scale. Oh, and absolutely. Just neighborhoods. Yeah. And that's, that's the uniquely odd thing about America is it's just such a vast geographic area. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that naturally, when you have predominantly English settlers coming into New England and mer- working their way down into the southern colonies, and then you've got predominantly German immigrants who are kind of settling down into the Midwest. And then, of course, you have a, a great amount of not really immigrants because, frankly, it was their country before we, we, we set up shop. You know, you, yeah. you obviously have the Hispanic influence on the West Coast as well. Mm-hmm. You do end up getting a lot of these unique traditions that happen. And right. they really are so different that they're not one thing binds them together until we hit that fateful day in 1840 or that fateful time in 1840 mm-hmm. when uh, Prince Albert and Queen Victoria decided to release a, a Merry Christmas card that showed a portrait of them by the fireplace with a giant Christmas tree, you know, and that's kind of like the the epitome of the household Christmas design and that's really kind of it's interesting how much the christmas tree is tied to that because within a couple of years everybody wanted a christmas tree in their house yeah yeah i mean you even saw this over in america um especially in uh, a lot of the northern cities um there were people who were doing more traveling and uh bringing across the the concept of the christmas tree and um you know displaying christmas trees in their front parlors, in the front windows, and mind you, this is mostly um, like upper middle class, upper class families doing this. Sure. But as soon as this idea took off and people started to really appreciate the concept, I mean, by 1850, there were Christmas trees in town squares um, for sale. And and the idea of, again, hawking Christmas <laughs> out on the streets um, that really truly started with the, with the idea of the Christmas tree um, in in America, and and it, you know it, people really took to this again for all the all the separation that we felt as as separate communities, um, and kind of this nostalgia of of longing for a quiet family holiday or uh, like some a deeper kind of nostalgia and spiritualness. Um, Christmas just fit the bill. It was exactly what people. It's exactly what people were looking for. And if you have the movement of you know what happened with the royals in England, it just it took so well. It it just worked really well. And I mean, and not just after. I mean, after um, Victoria and Albert did their Christmas card, Christmas Christmas cards took off by 1943. They were pretty common. 1843. Um, 1843. 1843. Sorry, in 1843, they were pretty common um, in England, and the the biggest depiction that you'd always see on these on these Christmas cards, especially really early forms of Christmas cards, is a center panel with a family around the the dinner table with a huge feast, and then pe- and then two panels off to the side of giving and helping the the poor and the hungry, and there was this charitable nature that really. Uh, that really came out and you know you look at the emphasis with uh with a christmas carol from charles dickens obviously. which of course is around the same time period in fact i believe it was the same year wasn't it 1843 uh i don't know if it was specifically 1843 i can't remember off the top of my head um <laughs> we, we uh we did have we did do an episode on this uh, let's riddle I know them with we darkness did. yeah so if i remembered every single year of everything we talked about i would just be thinking in numbers i would just be talking in numbers yeah <laughs> but you know how obsessed i am with christmas so that's why I'm oh, like, yeah I, yeah actually it's not i oh, let's throw them with darkness that's um that's the nutcracker episode uh i think it was uh unspeakable acts of christmas cheer was the one maybe yeah. maybe 
Um, but you know, there's the the concept of of charity and giving to the deserving poor, and we have to be very clear about that. It's giving to the deserving poor. It's you know the the single woman or the or the pauper child. You know, it wasn't you know necessarily given to the town drunk. Um, so there was that kind of concept was kind of in the back of um, people's minds when it came to charity around Christmas time. Christmas trees are taking off. People are want to adorn Christmas trees, and um, you know, kind of fo- starting to follow with the Germanic traditions. They're using fruits and uh, you know things that they were crafting at home, little trinkets, and hanging that off of off the tree. But soon, basically, the Martha Stewart version magazines that were going on at the time, the women's magazines, uh, started giving ideas of how to do more particular arts and crafts. Basically, ye oldie Pinterest um, on ye telling oldie, you... <laughs> ye oldie Pinterest. I love yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> of how to decorate and glitterify your tree and make it more uniform with, you know, round bobble ornaments and, and this kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, people started to get more into decorating their tree and then literally... By the next year, people were like, I don't have time to make all of these ornaments. So people started to sell them on the street. And ornaments became a huge market. And still to this day is a huge market out there um, to have stuff to hang on your tree for one month out of the year. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and I mean, and, and it just kind of slowly balloons from there. And again, you know, we'll reference other episodes too. Uh, when we talk about it's kind of a big deal, we talk about saint nicholas and we talk about the visit from saint nicholas poem that mm-hmm. ends up being coming popular around this time and really the idea of of santa claus becoming a uh, a new focal point for christmas everyone had knew and talked about saint nicholas but when you have saint nicholas and then sinterklaas and all these names kind of telephoning together to become santa claus um mm-hmm. he be kind of takes on the modern form that we Closer to the more modern form, it doesn't. He doesn't completely take on his current form until the Great Depression, um, mm-hmm. but he, he starts to take on his modern form. We start to work in the Nordic elements of reindeer and bringing in the fact that the reindeer have names and then the sleigh and all right. that stuff. But what's really interesting when you're looking at Santa Claus is that he also kind of feeds into the American ideal, in the sense that he is a manufacturer who has his own successful business and he has perfectly happy unpaid labor working underneath him. And again, we're talking times where we're like industrial revolution and all this other stuff where this concept really comes into play. Totally. And, and you have this idea of him being again, a fat fur cladden merchant, which is a a very common idea. Well, let me put a pause on that for a second. So in the Victorian era, and I'm just going to use Victorian era for both America and England at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Santa Claus was was a thin man. He did have the fur trimming, for sure. And even mm-hmm. though you hear the, the descriptions of a right jolly old elf, you know, sure. jolly didn't mean, oh, I'm fat, fat and happy, like we think yeah. of it as today. It Jolly just meant he was a, a euphoric individual, you know? Right. Um, so... But he absolutely does, and I think you're hitting a really important point that we kind of projected the American industrial image Mm -hmm. 
upon Santa Claus because Nicholas of Myra has nothing to do. I mean, sure. there is the fact that he gave money away to people mm-hmm. who needed it on Christmas Eve. There is that element that is the essential story of Santa Claus that is intrinsically there. But other than that, everything else is a projection that we've put on him. There's nowhere where elves come into it. There's nowhere where, you know, these are all just kind of mystical things we came up with to explain away how he does all these, how does he get all these toys to everybody, right? Yeah. But at the same time, um, Santa also does embrace um, certain things that wealthy merchants weren't necessarily embracing, the concept of giving away the fact that you're manufacturing all these things, but you're not taking a profit, you know, like that, again, that sense of giving and charity was not necessarily something that, you know, it was almost like um, you've been given so much wealth and power. Giving it away is basically forgiving you for having so much wealth and power. <clears throat> right. Well, you know, no one's ever said that. I mean, unless you're talking about Karl Marx, no one's ever said that having money and power is necessarily a bad thing. It's what you choose to do with it. And it is interesting how Santa Claus became to reflect the American ideals of of that. That this is what we wanted from our people in power. This mm-hmm. idea that, yeah, I've I've acquired all these things, but again I'm giving it back to people because these people need it. And these kids have been good. They've deserved it, you know? So Yeah. It is kind of Although isn't there isn't there that thing in the Bible, the blessed are the meek and all that? There's that kind of that concept that the the poor shall inherit the earth kind of thing. Sure, so. totally. Totally. But at the same time in the Bible you also have Joseph of Arimathea, who was mm-hmm. a wealthy follower of Jesus, and Jesus didn't shun him because he had money either. Yeah. That's you know? true. But what he did do is he paid for his tomb. He carved yeah. out a tomb which would have only been available to the rich at that point in time. So I'm telling you, uh, Jesus would have made a great fundraiser. Yeah, totally. So we talked about the Christmas card, which is really, really mm-hmm. important. If it's okay with you, I'd like to fast forward to the 20th century, if that's okay. Mm, not quite. Okay, so what do you what do you want to cover in the 19th um, century? Yeah, so I do want to um, go ahead and reiterate again the importance of the Christmas tree. I've just I stumbled upon further notes. Um, basically, um, you know, they have quotes from articles um, in 1877 talking about how um, every home had a Christmas tree. Even even the Jewish kids had a Christmas tree uh, because the idea was so popular and it became such an iconic image in such a short amount of time um, for, you know, what was Christmas. I mean, you think about Elf on the Shelf now, you know, that right, was sure. just a f- that's only a few years old and it's freaking everywhere, which I don't understand it. But I also don't have children. So, you know, yeah, it's whatever. definitely for like really young kids. Like we're talking first yeah. five years of life. Yeah, the, the ones that you have to convince to be on their best behavior. Um, <laughs> um, and then, you know, also we talked about, again, the the ornaments and how um, that tree decoration just totally boomed into a big business around 1870. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these, you know, ornaments were imported from Germany. Um, people, like you know, there were, you know, cottage industries where people were crafting them and, and selling them. Um and, uh, you know, one advertisement said, so many charming little ornaments can now be bought ready to decorate Christmas trees that it seemed almost a waste of time to make them at home. Um, and, you know, in talking about the Christmas cards, you know, again, um, really took off. Um, the, the custom was was huge and common for everybody to do by 1843 in the U.K., um, but it was R.H. Peace, who was a, a printer and a store owner in Albany, New York, 
who first uh, distributed the American-made Christmas cards in the early 1850s. Um, and the ones, the ones that he created specifically were um, scenes dominated by just a family at a hearth um, or a family around a Christmas tree. And, uh, and it was like these, these small images that didn't, um, didn't really have any allusions to poverty or cold or hunger the way they did in the UK, um, which I think is really very important to kind of note. <laughs> sure. um, that, that Dickensian ideal it didn't fully carry over. Um, people didn't want that on their Christmas cards, basically. Um, but instead, you would also have pictures of Santa, of reindeer, um, of, you know, Christmas presents and all of that stuff. And then um, there was uh, another printer named Louis Prang, who uh, was a German immigrant. And he expanded the concept of sending, of sending Christmas cards to a huge scale. Um, he... By 1870, he had owned like two thirds of the steam presses in America, and he was the first guy to perfect the color printing process. Um, and in doing so, he ended up distributing these Christmas cards everywhere, and people like t just bought into this. And he had insane profits from it, of course. But his concept was that he wanted to do it as um, a way of spreading small, affordable works of art. That was that was his idea. He thought cards that were uh, were a perfect way to to spread art throughout you know the country and to and to stimulate a popular interest in it. Um, but really, for people, they were just like, "This is so convenient. I don't have to write the full traditional Christmas letter. There is a pre-written sentiment. All I have to do is sign my name, stuff it in an envelope, and send it off." And that's and a multi-billion dollar industry was formed. And it is a multi-billion dollar industry. Although I know quite a few people who are turning away from cards these days because they are just over it. Um, although, you know, trying to think on the scope of convenience, we had people originally writing long Christmas letters, end of year letters. Then you have people who say, screw that, I'm sending out cards with pre-written stuff. And now people just send postcards with their picture on it and happy holidays from the Jones. Yeah, it's almost a reversion <laughs> back to the early industrial cards. What I mean by that is that Christmas cards were originally industrial cards. They were cards sent amongst different companies mm -hmm. and like from, or I should say, business to their clientele to just to sure. wish them a Merry Christmas and to remind them that they are still around. Yeah. And, and that's really where the whole template of, okay, here's a little scene, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, Mm -hmm. uh, comes from, but then what we're really talking about is the personalized Christmas card. Um, yeah, and it's it's interesting how the personalized Christmas card is going back to the root of the entire purpose to begin with. You know? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and people just honestly at this time, you know, in this sort of gilded age time in America, people are moving at a really fast pace, and um, and yeah, doing these cards has made it so much easier, so much more convenient, and they wouldn't have to do as many personal holiday visits either. So people were were kind of all about this, and by the 1880s, it was like, no, this is the tradition, this is how it works now. Um, and also, they made uh, suitable presents for the fringe people that you don't care about as much, <laughs> because people quite literally had their ideas of of gifts being in a hierarchy those closest to you got the biggest the most lavish gifts 
then this, the more you work out as far as farther out into your networks and your circles, uh, those people got smaller gifts or cards or whatever. Right. So, and again, that's, I feel like that still holds pretty, pretty true today. Um, also, I think people are fairly sympathetic when it's like, we're close, but we're not that close. So if you are going to get me something, please just get me a little something. Cause I don't want to spend that much money on you either. <laughs> right. Sure. Totally. I mean, that's what, and the hierarchy is very much in place. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing a mishmash of, yes, I've got some personalized gifts for friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly I'm making, you know, I'm giving jars of mold wine for this year as a gift and everyone's getting it. So it's not really much of a surprise. So, yeah. um, but there's also, I think, something nice about that is that you're still thinking of somebody. You're still letting him know that you care about them by giving him that gift. So yeah. that's, I mean, for some people, it's completely artificial. It's just because they have money and they can do it. And sure. it's more of an execution of, oh, look what I can do. Mm-hmm. I try not to think of it that way. I try to think of it more as I give a gift to somebody who I want to give a gift to. I don't give a gift to someone because I can give a gift to them, you know? Yeah. And, and when we talk about gift giving, I mean, it really, it was important, but like you mentioned, it was kind of a, a modest role in the past and it slowly inched towards the forefront and became more important. And in America, it, it really became a, a, a lavish tradition. Um, you know, it really was a product of the commerce and consumerism we were already seeing as a society. And so... You know, Christmas presents were just almost a, a demonstration of, of look what we can do. Look at this world we live in. We can give these presents, and that's okay. Um, and also, it helped Americans kind of mediate some of their uh, more fragile friendships and relationships with people in their communities, um, especially in a society that was kind of fragmented and having a really hard time in this gilded age where, you know, there was a lot of um, societal change going on and people were having a hard time coping. Sure. So it, so it was kind of a, a, a symbolic solution um, to, you know, the struggles with income inequality and economic inequality um, and uh, individuality and, and all these other things that were, that were struggling. And so gift giving, at, even at that point in the late 1800s, was already controversial and already sometimes seen as worrisome, a little materialistic, for some people, a perversion of the holy day, you know? So it's really interesting that like the, the complaints that people still have now about Christmas have been around since Christmas was the Christmas that we know it. <laughs> So it's just, it really is very interesting um, that it was, you know, it, and it wasn't even so much the economic sector or the, the store owners and, and those people who were driving this consumers were doing it too. It's supply and demand. So people were, the merchants were working right alongside with, you know, the customers and giving them what they wanted and making and answering the call you know we say that oh man we're sick of having to make all these homemade ornaments every year then buy some you know um christmas trees are so popular we're starting to put them in churches wouldn't it be nice if we could see christmas decorations everywhere come to fao schwartz and see how amazing our christmas display is you know like those things were starting to to really they were just feeding each other consistently um 
and uh and yeah so i mean it's kind of that idea that did you i guess the point that i'm trying to make is that christmas has always been a consumer holiday <laughs> or at least the christmas yeah. as we know it yeah yeah ab- absolutely i do think we do need to talk a little bit about the great depression yeah and the impact it had on christmas because you know 1929 was a very meager christmas for many many americans uh, who had lost all their savings in some cases you know when finally when you get to the early 30s and you get to roosevelt coming to power and having you know relief modern relief welfare essentially taking mm-hmm. its form to help people not starve to death you know you get a little bit of help but you know through the majority of the 1930s people a lot of lower class people had a really really hard time and mm-hmm. so What's interesting is that's kind of where the perception of Santa Claus changes. And we talked about this in the Coca-Cola episode, too, but I, I'll yeah. repeat it for the, for the sake of repeating it. You know, he went from being this this jolly but svelte Santa to a jolly and rotund Santa. Because uh, of all the sugar. Because of all, <laughs> we now know it's all the sugar. And th- that's really his magic power is he has all that sugar and doesn't get diabetes. Uh, yep. But he was changed that way because he reflected that, well, if you had more money, you could afford yeah. to eat so well. Yeah. And you could afford, you could afford to make Christmas cookies, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I remember, and, I'm, and again, like the, the concept of, you know, the, the image of the, the fat wealthy man was sure. very common to the, the public psyche at that point. Particularly. Yeah. And I, you know, the Christmas was incredibly hard, particularly on farmers. Um, mm-hmm. I remember Jimmy Carter talking about, uh, growing up during the Depression, of course, Jimmy Carter, former U.S. president, but he, before he was even governor of Georgia, he was a prominent farmer, right? And mm-hmm. his family had had a farm that had suffered some hard times, and his Christmas gift one year, during the Christmas of 29 was, or one year, I don't know if it's 29, but he said one year his Christmas gift was six oranges. Wow. That was his Christmas present. Um, mm-hmm. And he got a little bit more the next year as things got better, but you know, just to really help people understand just how hard it was. And I'm glad that we have programs now like Toys for Tots, for example, that gets toys in the families of people who can't afford it. And you know, you have programs that help, you know, kids get Chris or families get Christmas trees for their houses because they can't afford Christmas trees. Um, Even with the economic troubles we've had in recent years, we've learned so much from what that experience was like in the 1930s that we've kind of done our best to make sure it wasn't quite as bad as that mm-hmm. happened, you know? Um, but you know, now you have Santa Claus in his current modern form. You also have the more modern editions of, you know, 1924 was the first ever Macy's Thanksgiving parade, which was yep. the official start of the Christmas shopping season. You know? Ugh. <laughs> I know. I, I swear to God, I think that was kind of like, for me personally, when I look at when I've been reading through the history of consumer Christmas and all this other stuff, I'd like, that's the nail in the coffin. As soon as a department store is kicking off your holiday shopping season, which I will give Macy's credit for this. At least they wait until Thanksgiving to kick off the Christmas season because I hate going to a store in October and seeing Christmas stuff right alongside the the clearance Halloween stuff, and that just <clears throat> bugs me. <laughs> well, you know, I I think I'm glad you're saying that because that brings us to Christmas creep, 
mm-hmm. which is not some dude like hanging on the corner like saying Merry Christmas while like you know working on a candy cane or whatever. Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> oh my my name's Chris Krangle. I'm the Christmas creep. Um, <laughs> yeah, like it, that's not a thing, but. Christmas creep being that, you know, originally Macy's was the Macy's Christmas parade. And now they kind of softened it a little bit so that people could have their day. But that doesn't change the fact that Christmas creep still happens. And that is, in fact, the phenomenon, the economic phenomenon of Christmas marketing getting earlier and earlier and earlier Mm -hmm. every year. Uh, And you're right. Now it's to the point where come early October, the Christmas displays are smaller to be fair, smaller, but by mid-October, you have the Christmas displays up for people who want to get an early start on buying ornaments this mm. year, or that year, Ugh. whatever year it is. Uh, by Halloween itself, you've got some stores in full Christmas uh, mode. But yet there's also stores who are rejecting that that premise, like Nordstrom's oh, yeah. rejects the premise of celebrating Christmas before Christmas. And they say, we will not be open on Thanksgiving. We will not decorate yeah. until the day after Thanksgiving. Yeah, and uh, that's awesome. And I really respect stores for doing that. And it's really, it's just one of those things where for me, I personally, this is my personal rant right now. I love autumn. It is my favorite time of year. It is my favorite season. And I I love trudging through leaves. I love pumpkin spice flavored everything. I don't care. Call me basic. I don't care. Well, you're a white girl, so I mean, to be fair, it's you're kind of living up to your your stereotype. Right, right. I love when the pumpkin smash uh, smoothie comes to Jamba Juice. It's my favorite. Um, but the thing is, is I and why can't we just let autumn be autumn? I mean, especially here in California or in the Bay Area where we are, autumn doesn't even start until the end of October because it's so freaking hot all the time. That it, it just really bugs me that all of a sudden it's like, and now I'm in winter mode, even though winter doesn't start until December 21st this year. Yeah. Well, it doesn't when it starts every year. But I see your point. And I just want to add a couple other things about Christmas creep, uh, which is that the first off, the term was, term was coined mm-hmm. in a 1987 article in the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, the article was titled, He's Well-Suited to Enjoying, to Enjoying Life of Santa um, by Alf Sewers. Uh, and it talks about a real-life uh, actor, Len Utecht, who plays, who's basically his job is he goes to Christmas parties and plays Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, uh, the, I'm going to read a quick little excerpt here. It says uh, his Christmas card, or sorry, his business cards read Santa Claus. He has six Santa suits and eight white wigs in his ag- attic. 32 volumes of Santa scrapbooks in his living room and a basement full of photographs from 47 years of life as Kris Kringle. As if it weren't enough that Utecht is Santa's real-life alter ego, between July and January, he will make 170 appearances as the jolly old gentleman. And the article jokes that uh, the season has been creeping its way all the way back to Labor Day. Um, It hasn't really ever quite gotten that bad. But given the... yeah. It's noticeable. It's noticeable. And I mean, and it, I'm not surprised, truly, because if you look at it, I mean, Christmas, just the Christmas holiday shopping season is such a huge chunk of the American economy 
that it's it's truly not surprising at all. I mean, as as long as people are trying to prove their love through Christmas gifts, and I love you more because this is bigger and better, so I have to punch somebody out for a TV at Best Buy, <laughs> it's going to happen, you know? It's true. Well, I actually have some figures I want to share with you because of that. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Because uh, first off, there's this website, fundevo.com. Uh, Devo as in like the male version of a diva, not Devo as in the band. Um, oh, they're not they're not whipping it? No, they're not whipping it or whipping it good okay. for that matter. Um, so, but you're right. Now, some companies, their sales go up by 50% month over month during the holiday season. And this whole logic of Christmas creep is that, you know, you can increase your profit margins if you start the Christmas shopping season earlier. The trouble with that is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy when you do that. Mm-hmm. Of course, you're going to make more because you're starting to sell them earlier. Duh. It's kind of uh, inflationary numbers, inflationary thinking. But in 2015, 40% of Americans started their Christmas shopping before November. 40%. Uh, yeah. And in fact, 20% started in October. 7% started in September. And My, start- my dad is the um, October, early November guy. Yeah. Well, even more interesting is that 13% start their Christmas shopping even earlier than September. Really? Yeah. Um, oh. But... By the way, that's one chunk of it. 42% of Americans in a different echelon started their Christmas shopping in November. So we're talking 82% of the country starts their Christmas shopping prior to the Christmas shopping season starting. So, And now these, are, of course, are the figures of the people they, they got data from because they don't know that yeah. for sure everywhere. But of the people they polled, yeah. this is uh, where they got that, those numbers from. Um, pretty astounding. I, want, I have some couple of more fun facts that I want to share because I know we're, we're starting to run out of time here and we do want to do feedback, but they, the countercultural response to this I find is fascinating because in the late 1960s and officially, truly, in 2001 when you have the, you know, the online surge of online shopping mm-hmm. is when you start to get this idea of buy nothing Christmas. And yeah. You know, they even Buy Nothing Christmas, which is uh, the website, buynothingchristmas.org, even they don't say, well, don't, you know, it's impossible to not go through Christmas and buy nothing. Because then you're pretty much just living as a Jehovah's Witness. But what they're saying is to to not go overboard and to be more meager with it. And it's just a reminder of, let's not give it completely into consumerism. Let's recognize that gift giving has its place in our society. Mm -hmm. But let's not, you know spend two thousand dollars on on christmas this year right exactly yeah uh and that's a recent that's a recent trend i mean it was officially Mm -hmm. observed by ellie clark in the 1960s um but it but since really it's tried to gain steam uh since the last 15 years really so Mm -hmm. um i don't know if you've heard anything about that group at all but um i have i have heard well and i've heard of other things too where um i know some people who have um foregone christmas and instead um went to go feed homeless on christmas day um or people who've done more in the way of charitable acts instead of um buying christmas presents so so i think that's a really good concept um because i want really quick i'm just going to run through this list because we are running out of time but um there there truly is like you know the the sort of madness when it comes to the holiday shopping as we so well know and i want to talk about some of the most popular christmas toys oh of course that have caused mayhem um i mean the the first time that somebody really that people truly got in like went insane over a toy um was in uh 1980 with the rubik's cube 
um, this was one of the first times that people actually lined up out the door to get a to get a toy, um, and that was the Rubik's cube. So, think about Rubik's cube. Think about freaking what is it? The Zuzu hamsters that were so freaking popular last year. Very, we've come a long way in our toy technology. <laughs> we have. Um, I remember my dad went all over to find me, me a talking Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And it was essentially it was a Teddy Ruxpin that had been rebranded as a Mickey Mouse, but it was you know mm-hmm. you put it in a little cassette tape and it would read you stories. And I loved yeah. it because I love Mickey Mouse so much. And my dad went sure. all over Hell's Half Acre trying to find one. And you know, of course, it was from Santa. But in after fact, you know, my mom told me about how much of a, a hell we put him through trying to find that. And I remember with my baby cousins. Mm-hmm. The Tickle Me Elmo of 1996, oh, that yeah. was just like, it was nuts right. trying to find that. And like entire stores having their entire stock sold out oh, by definitely. like the first week of December. It was nuts. Yeah, yeah. Um, ColecoVision in 1982 was a really, really big deal, especially because um, it had Donkey Kong. And everybody was all about Donkey Kong because it was so freaking addictive. And, sure. um and which you know so that was a breakout toy of the year however it didn't really ColecoVision did not last nearly as long (laughs) as other video game consoles because it was really flawed um 1983 cabbage patch kids were huge this was like what this is like when the news really started to take note of holy crap people are really spending a lot of money buying these toys um and and really going out of their way to to find them and there was you know, near riots at stores when people were short on inventory. Um, and then Trivial Pursuit was also a breakout in 1983. Uh, if we go to 1984, um, you have not only Transformers, but also GoBots, which were the cheaper version of Transformers. And both of them, you know, so conveniently had TV shows, which were basically, you know, half-hour commercials to sell toys. Oh, totally. Well, that's what He-Man was, too. He-Man was... The series fit mm-hmm. to sell the toy. Yeah, they did that a lot in the 80s. They also did it with My Little Pony. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Teddy Ruxpin, like you mentioned, 1985 was huge that year. Um, I I had one. Well, I should say my brother had one, but I got to use it. Um, and my friend had the Teddy Ruxpin and one of his friends where they would talk to each other when they were reading the story. That was kind of cool. Um, for a lot of people, they're really creepy. I thought it was cool. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, also, 19, 1985 was My Little Ponies. That was another breakout year for that one. Nintendo in 1988. Then a Game Boy in 1989. Those were huge. Um, 1990, uh, freaking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Because you had the movie that came out, and then all of a sudden it was just, like, freaking outrageous. Everybody wanted all the toys and all the stuff. Sure. Um, when Barney came out in 1992, same thing. People wanted all the stuff that was related to Barney. 1994, Brian, I know you, this is our generation for realsies, uh, Pogs. Yeah. Like, yeah. And Pogs are so people, cheap, too. That's the thing, too. Like That was just a huge phenomenon. Yeah. It, they were cheap, but they were such a huge deal that everybody wanted them. It was just the breakout toy. And, and they sold you know 350 million units in that one year. Just of pogs. That's insane. Yeah, it's it's, um, it's weird. Yeah, uh, Beanie <coughs> Babies in 1995. Oh. Beanie Babies, and, uh, the Tamagotchi egg in 1998 too. My God. Oh yeah, 
Oh, yeah. Big, big deal. Nintendo 64 when that came out in 96. Of course. Uh, tick, tickle Me Elmo, of course. I mean, and let's talk about that because that one was really outrageous because it, I mean, the thing sold for 30 bucks, but because of the short supply, there were people who were trying to bid on Tickle Me Elmo's for $1,500 online. And mind you, this is early online shopping before it was like a re- really regular, easy thing to do. We're like, you know, eBay had just gone online like the day before, basically. Yeah, kind of. I'm, of um, course, you know, you know, speaking hyperbole, but. Yeah, yeah. And, there were, and there were legitimate, there was like legitimate mass chaos going on at these stores. Uh, there was a Walmart clerk in Canada who got trampled by customers um, where he, he literally, he, he suffered injuries to his back, his jaw, his knee, had a broken rib, had a concussion, pulled a hamstring, and he was kicked with, he was kicked by people until he was unconscious. I mean, just mind-blowing what people will do for a toy. Yeah, um, mob mentality, everyone's stressed out and they just lose their composure and lose all sense of logic in that point, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Furbies in 1998 were a big freaking deal. I know I really wanted one. I did not get one. That's kind of okay because I kind of didn't really want one as much the next year, so it was probably not worth the hassle. Well, th- was I the only one who didn't think that it looked like a mogwai with a beak? No, it totally did, which is why I wanted one. Okay. <laughs> I was like, that's the closest I'm ever going to get to having a real gizmo. <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, GoldenEye 007 in 1998. Everybody totally. remembers that game. That game was important everybody <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah for sure um and then i think the the big toy this year is uh is hatchimals hatchimals is, is a big deal that is um, the big one right now but i do want to say that i think it's hasbro made uh made a big uh, apology this year not publicly but just kind of in their product line because last year star wars the force awakens was a huge toy line I don't know if it was about people selling out because I think they prepared for that. But the big controversy last year is that Hasbro didn't release a Ray action figure. Oh, yeah. uh, and they claimed it was because they didn't want to spoil the movie because they knew how important Lies. she was. Yeah. Well, they've made up for that this year because there's tons of Ray action figures this year. And I couldn't be happier that they are there. Um, it was it was truly a uh, a Twitter campaign because... Hasbro has been known to do this a few times. They even um, changed the gender on the T-Rex when they released Jurassic Park toys by uh, by giving giving the dinosaur a male pronoun when it was a female in Jurassic Park. So they're... <laughs> They've been known to do this several times and now people are just finally calling them out on, on this sort of rampant sexism. Um... And it was a hashtag campaign. It said, "Where's Ray?" And uh, and it was it worked. It worked. Yeah, it totally did. Uh, and of course, this year you can't deny the fact that the lead character in Rogue One uh, is a female. So mm-hmm. yes, there are absolutely action figures of her this year. You can't not have it because then it just you're just a bad salesman if that's the, if that's the case. Yep. So exactly. Um, and I don't really don't understand what uh, what releasing a single female uh, action figure would have done to spoil the plot that well, because was a, they always want to give them like a special toy and if they said that she had force abilities then sorry spoilers for people who haven't seen the movie but it's been almost a year at this point guys um 
you know that that's their argument i don't buy into it but that was their argument is it no it, that that was that was their pr stunt trying to get out of it that's that's what that was yeah anyway christmas consumerism everybody Indeed. it's always been there so i guess just the get question over it. yeah totally <laughs> and i have a couple other figures i just want to share um to maybe have you guys to think about this year because as of last year in 2015 the average american just the average American, not or average person, I should say, not the not just the average household. The average person spent eight hundred and six dollars on Christmas last year, and that's uh, n- not just gifts. Five hundred ninety-four dollars of those are gifts. There's a whole breakdown on Fundevo.com where you can see what went to which. Um, but you know that's a lot of money, and just 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 think about it. And that's all I'm gonna ask you to do. And finally, because we need to say it. Uh, the honorable mention must go to the Christmas Price Index, which is a joking re- reference to the fact of how much does it cost every year for the uh, for the all the gifts in the twelve days of Christmas. So uh, you know, because some people want to know what the actual cost of a pear tree is and how much a partridge would cost. Is this adjusted for inflation? It is adjusted for inflation. Now keep in mind, it's adjusted every single year. So in 2015, all the gifts. Uh, together would have cost $34,130.99, which had only risen about $200 from the previous year. So, uh, you guys... Why does that seem like... That actually seems rather low to me. (laughs) Really? The cost of a luxury car seems kind of low. Not not a luxury car, more like a mid-size, like a hybrid. It's a cost about as much as a hybrid costs today. Well, and this is for all the gifts? I mean... I I don't know if it's... I don't know if it's factoring in the repetition of them at all, but it might be. So, well, I mean, like, so what? Like, Lords of Leaping. I, how much do you pay? How much do you pay professional dancers on an hourly basis? And how long are they dancing for? And I mean, do they have union representation? Like, what's going? On? I like. <laughs> I feel like. I feel like they might be getting shafted there. And then the five golden rings. It's probably not a very good quality. Like, maybe it's like a low carat gold or something like that. I don't know, but. Anyway, these are just my questions. It seems a little low. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Okay, fine. That's fine. But um, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. You have the commercialization of Christmas. And, uh, you know, we'll get into Christmas wishes in a moment. But let's do a sec- take a second and listen or to read some feedback uh, from our listeners since we haven't done it in like a month and a half. So This week in listener feedback. Can we just sum up? and say ellie thank you so much for all of your feedback for both shows we can't read all of your emails but they're wonderful and we totally appreciate them absolutely yeah that's fine <laughs> i agree with you 100 percent um thank you and we appreciate especially because you know we've always i guess somehow appealed to younger listeners and you know the kids who are in high school who are who started off who are now in college listening to our show uh it's kind of just very interesting hearing them grow up and listening to our to our stuff Thank you to all those people who have found us uh, in that regard. Um, going back, oh my gosh, all the way to uh, November. Jeez. Uh, the person who goes only by the letter G uh, says, you're a nerd's dream. Uh, and it says, oh, I'm, I'm an Oakland, California native, go Sharks, and currently a U.S. Navy sailor working on her degree in American history. And I work a lot of long hours, and I gotta say, I love your Nerds on History podcast. It brightens up my day, and I learned about things I never thought I wanted to learn about. Unlike a lot of history podcasts I've found, yours is entertaining and informative. 
the alcohol episode and your recent presidential history episode were all great. Um, she also wanted to mention that she used to work on the USS Hornet before she enlisted, which is, of course, uh, a World War II naval vessel that is uh, docked in Alameda, California now. And it's kind of a, a floating museum, as it were, that you can go on and mm-hmm. see. Pretty cool. Uh, and she would love to see it request an episode on, on U.S. Navy history. Um, and because there's lots of fantastic stories behind them. And we want to say just thank you. Thank you for that. Much appreciated. Uh, do you want to read the next one? So this one is from Tiff. Um, following up on her previous feedback, um, said, hey, nerds, I literally just got caught up on Nerds on History. I'm currently downloading the first eight episodes of Nerds on Film for work tomorrow. Uh, I work in a warehouse, which is why I got caught up so quickly. My ears have a lot of free time, and rather than listening to the same top 20 songs all day on the radio, I found your podcasts. To date, Nerds on History and Hollywood Babylon are the only podcasts I've listened to their entirety. That's awesome. Um, You guys and gal uh, bleeping rock. I lost my bleep at work listening to the Olympic episode and hearing the phrase... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't bleeping think of the bleeping horses during the true and false segment. Uh, yeah, we were drinking a little during that one. Ugh. Um, I have been spreading the word of nerd every day at work to anyone who will listen since I have only been listening to NOH for the past couple months. I also fangirled so hard when you read my feedback. I bet you're fangirling again right now. Uh, thank you guys for all the time and heart you put into your episodes. I cannot wait for the next one. Tiff. Awesome. Uh, we have a more recent one uh, talking to our last recent episodes from James, and his it's praise and suggestion. And he, I'm going to summarize what he said. For the most part, he was saying that uh, he thought the Aboriginal episodes were utterly fascinating to listen to, and recommended us to look up uh, what happened in White Clay, Nebraska, which is uh, it deals with how settlers handled the Native American population there. Um, and he said, "Be warned, it's a downer." So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, as is usually the case, unfortunately, when we're talking about these kinds of situations. So um, I think what we'll do is we will read... uh, Well, actually, no, we got all the ones from Ellie. And uh, we'll wish our listeners uh, a Merry Christmas. Of course, we're going to... Because this will be coming out right before Christmas. And, um, you know, from Eric and from everybody at Nerdonomy, we want you guys to have a happy and safe holiday as usual. And, you know, really... Lactose intolerance doesn't go get talked about a lot in this in this country, <laughs> but I really want you to be careful that if you are lactose intolerant and you choose to drink eggnog, please please take your lactate. It's it's yes. not a laughing matter. Um, nope. it really isn't. So um, so please do that because nothing is worse than a bloated Christmas. So <laughs> good job, Brian. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, and so, Sarah, why don't you tell our listeners how they could become a feedbacker? Uh, well, if you guys would like to write to us, you can go to nerdonomy.com. Clicking that Talk to Us button we will shoot an email straight to all of our inboxes. Otherwise, if you prefer social media, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, but chances are it's not going to get read on the air. Unless it's really, really good. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then, otherwise, you can also um, give us a review on iTunes. Um Spread the word nerd. Tell your friends all about both of our podcasts because they are both delightful. Um, And yeah, that's pretty much it. Spread the word of nerd like a bird turd. Uh, So it is that time, nerds. So until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting winter-themed episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.
I'm I'm just glad I got some payback for that rampant misogyny there. Brian. It was a joke. It was yeah. a gag gift. Yeah, so was mine. I hate you. <laughs>